original pirate material. You're listening to the streets. Lock down your aerial. Has it come to this? Original pirate material. You're listening to the streets. Lock down your aerial. Make yourself at home. We got diesel or some of that homegrown. Hello, comrades, and welcome to season two, episode six of Spectre. Today, we'll be exploring and debunking some of the most common anti-communist propaganda, arguments and statistics that have been delivered since the success of the Russian Revolution. It's been just over three decades since the fall of the Soviet Union and the proclaimed death of communism. Since then, a new tide of anti-communism was born out of fear that other socialist states would not falter in the same manner and that the youth of the West would lean towards communism. At the heart of common anti-communist argument is statistical dishonesty, ridiculous estimates of the so-called death toll of communism, ranging from 50 to 100 million people. These varying statistics put forward by Western academics have entered the mainstream media and have went unchallenged for so long. Despite this new wave of anti-communism, little has changed in how these arguments are put forward. They resemble the same familiarity as the debates that happened during the Cold War. Three key anti-communist writers of this time were all foreign-born and responded in a more intellectual manner compared to what we see today. These writers were Karl Poppers, Isaiah Berlin and F.A. Hayek. Their most known works, which will be in the description of this episode, became the standard texts and mandatory reads in British universities. From their key texts, we can easily summarise their collective arguments. They claim that Marxism has pretensions to be a scientific theory and in the behaviour of mankind in society is not governed by laws in the manner that atoms are. Elaborating political and economic programmes on the basis of these laws violates the freedom of individuals. They further claim that individual freedom is the best way towards progress in society and attempts to limit this are contradictory to human nature. As hilarious as these arguments are, they were directed at a much more rigid and mechanical view of Marxism rather than the more sophisticated views of Marx and Lenin. Though these attacks were also carried out during Stalin's time, the Soviet Union suffered enormous destruction as a result of the Second World War and the workers of the Soviet Union felt a genuine fear of another war, a fear that was felt throughout the globe, especially in Britain. By the 1960s, the experience and praxis of parties in capitalist countries showed the communist movement to be an incredibly diverse force and Marxism also began to excite the youth. During this period, communist education for young party members and youth wing members was excellent. The youth did not fall for the tired equation of communism equals Stalin equals Gulag. The Black Book of Communism published in 1997 by Stefan Courtois, Andrei Paschkowski, Nicholas Wirth, Jean-Louise Margolin and several other European academics is probably one of the most common pieces of modern anti-communist literature. The word literature doing some heavy lifting in this sentence. It is most famous for its 100 million death statistic along with many other dramatic falsifications. And the most common anti-communist arguments, the works of the Black Book, always seem to pop up. So instead of going through the full and ever-boring verses of this book, we will go through the main and most popular of anti-communist lies and arguments and debunk things from there. 
Number 1. The October Revolution in Foreign Intervention One of the most remarkable features of the 1917 revolution, remarkable enough that even Nicholas Wirth, contributor to the Black Book, agreed that there was a lack of immediate bloodshed at the very early stages of the transitioning of power. The Cheka was initially set up of a hundred people and briefed to prevent undisciplined acts of looting, revenge and needless vandalism. What dramatically altered this situation was foreign intervention. Over 200,000 troops from the imperialist powers, initially and with the exception of Japan in the Far East, these forces were there to bolster those base forces fighting for the white dictatorship. They provided weapons and training and their presence allowed for the temporary creation of anti-Bolshevik states. As a result of the militarisation of these states, the Soviets were forced to adapt a harder economic policy, this being known as war communism. This is the basic background into the foregone intervention in civil war period, a period which is often twisted by anti-communist propaganda and key details of intervention are either neglected or completely missed out. 2.5 million deaths are attributed to communism through the famine period and laid as a deliberate policy and act by the Soviet government, fighting on a number of fronts against counter-revolutionary and imperialist forces. These mentioned famine deaths are inseparable from disease which spreads easily through malnourished populations. This 2.5 million total also includes the deaths of soldiers on both sides during the civil war. These deaths are specifically labelled as deaths under the so-called Red Terror, one of the most popular pieces of anti-communist catchphrases. Number 2. Soviet Collectivisation During the 1920s, as a result of the new economic policy, richer peasants, or kulaks, aimed to use their more advantageous trading position to ransom the Soviet government and gouge for a higher price for grain. This demand evolved into a more political attack against Soviet and Communist Party representatives and villages. These actions were a clear and political threat to the Soviets and the actions of the Kulaks threatened to starve the urban areas of food. This is a fact which is absent from the most common pieces of anti-communist propaganda, for example, the Black Book. The Soviet government acted quickly to prevent famine and believed that a return to a policy of forced requisition from the Kulaks would resolve this. Threats to food supplies to towns continued to grow and the pace of collectivisation was increased. In opposition to this, the Kulaks organised armed clashes against the Soviet state. They also actively destroyed livestock, food stores and farming equipment. At this time, Ukrainian nationalists boasted that close to one million Kulaks were involved in armed attacks against Soviet authorities. The deliberate destruction of livestock by the Kulaks drastically affected the production of animal manure for fertiliser which was greatly needed in other regions. The resulting famine has been laid at the Soviet state. This claim completely ignores the complex situation of the countryside at a time where great internal debate was occurring within the Soviet leadership. The collectivisation was pragmatic, not a deliberate attempt to cause a famine, it was the opposite. It was the actions of the Kulaks which caused the famine to hit the Soviet Union. During the process of collectivisation, the Soviet government had its own concerns about its pace and the local officials rushing the process too much. Apart from such errors, 
other factors such as weather conditions have been ignored by Western academics. The weather of 1931 was severe and such conditions continued into 1932 which resulted in famine the following year. In 1936, bad weather hit the Soviet Union again but this time they were better equipped to manoeuvre stocks and grain and prevent a famine. S.G. Wheatcroft in R.W. Davis's Agriculture covers the economic transformation on the Soviet Union and its famine period. We can see that the Soviet Union actively worked to prevent famines. It was the Kulaks who actively worked in causing them. This was anti-Soviet sabotage. But who are we told to blame? The Communists. The forced collectivization was not foreseen by anyone in the Soviet leadership, even Comrade Stalin. Stalin's policy towards the peasantry changed towards a policy of rapid industrialization. Stalin also didn't treat the peasantry as a single mass, instead encouraged the poorer peasants to side with the Soviets and many did just that. There are lessons to learn from Soviet collectivization, and these lessons must continue. The comparison of this to an intentional fascist genocide however, must end. Number 3. The Gulags The word gulag today has become the easiest calling card in anti-communist bingo. The many quoted figures are based upon total prison populations mixing common criminals and political prisoners. We see this extensively with Rudy Rummel's fabrications. Rummel's statistics, for a lack of a better word, are scraped from his imagination of gulag populations and estimated deaths. He parrots the same ludicrous claims as orthodox Christian nationalist Alexander Solzhenitsyn and now Zionist and former spy for America, Anatoly Skaransky. Rummel claims that the Gulags held, in the period of 1983-87, to 87, 4 million people and that 200,000 people died regularly. These figures are contradicted and obliterated by every other documented and legitimate calculation. These imagined figures are the piling of misestimates and the imagined and inflated death rates. After quoting ridiculously high estimates of total prison populations, he then works out excess death rates as a percentage of the supposed death rates of the Stalin period. Rummel's estimate of the Gulag population in 39 turns out to be almost three times of the actual figure. His estimates for the death rate due to hardship rather than direct repression in 1944 is 20% or 200 per 1000, although the actual figure for one of the harshest wartime periods was closer to 92 per 1000. He then comes to his own finding that prisoners in the immediate post-war Stalin period are allocated 50% of this death rate, while prisoners in the Brezhnev period are allocated 5% of the original figure. Yet, with the Stalin period, death rates differed between the wartime period of shortages and privation and the post-war recovery in the early 50s by more than 20-fold. Rummel assumes that in 1953, the last year of Stalin's time, there were 10 million Gulag prisoners, 2 million of which died. This would be an annual death rate of 20% or 200 per 2000. Not only is Rummel's total number of prisoners astronomically wrong, the US researchers revealed that the true death rate was a fraction of Rummel's estimate. With these fictitious figures and estimate, 
Rummel claims that over 5 million prisoners in the gulags died in the 70s and 80s alone. The ever-chanted figure of 60 million gulag deaths on top of those by natural causes and 27 million during World War II would be impossible for any society whose population was around 160 to 220 million from 1930 to the 80s. Yet somehow, these figures are believed as fact. This is a showcase of the irrationalism and baselessness of anti-communism. We see such rags as The Economist and the many other journals that speak for British millionaires spew this garbage into the mainstream as unquestionable fact. Who knows how high these imagined figures will rise to in the future. Number 4. The Holodomor The Ukrainian famine, also dubbed the Holodomor, is a bone of contention among some of the left. It is also a cause celebre for the Nazis as they hope to annex Ukraine for living space. Ukrainian Nazis and Nazi collaborators during the Cold War began to reinvent their public image as freedom fighters for national independence, and today we see the exact same thing. The Captive Nations propaganda piece was a powerful tool for the West and served to hide the activity of Ukrainian, Baltic and other European fascists in aiding Nazi occupiers and their participation in the Holocaust. Some of the most modern and frequent anti-communist texts have been those of Robert Conquests. In his works, there are continuous references and drawings from the works of Nazi collaborators. In one of his major works, which will be mentioned in the description of this episode, he uses Alexa Workday's The Nine Circle, published by the Stefan Bandera Youth Movement, a Ukrainian fascist organisation. We also see Walter Dushnik's 50 Years Ago, The Famine in Ukraine, published in 1983 by the World Congress of Free Ukrainians, another far-right organisation, used as a major reference to so-called academics in an attempt to legitimise the claim of the Holodomor. The irony being that Dushniks was a member of the organisation of Ukrainian nationalists, another fascist organisation still operating in Ukraine today. Rudy Rummel and Conquest rely extensively on the work of fascists and Nazi collaborators in their order to retain the false narrative that the Ukrainian famine was an attempt at genocide. This includes the works of James E. Mace and Dana Dalrymple, whose major sources are Nazis and Nazi collaborators, such as Nicholas Pridgetsko, the former functionary of the Minister of Culture and Education of Ukraine during Nazi occupation. Also, Otto Schiller, responsible for the management of agriculture in Ukraine during Nazi occupation. And Dr. Ewald Amende, a high-ranking official in Nazi-sponsored anti-communist propaganda missions and organisations. Amande is the most infamous for attempting to, in her book, Human Life in Russia, include pictures claiming to be from the Ukrainian famine in 1933. These pictures were actually from the post-Civil War famine in 21-22. James E. Mace sponsored this work of historical revisionism. This deep embeddedment of fascist propaganda in Western academia is greatly concerning. The Ukrainian famine was not an act of active genocide. The famine occurred as both a result of weather conditions and the sabotaging acts of the Kulaks, as previously talked about in this episode. 
how widespread photographic falsifications and accounts have been given credibility is puzzling. One thing is easy to understand though. Anti-communist academics have very active imaginations. Many anti-communist myths are focused in the Soviet Union, but there is a vast wealth of drivel that exists to tarnish other socialist states. It would take numerous episodes to cover the slander against each state, so we will cover any major piece or pieces against some states. China, for example, shares a similar level of falsification against it, especially falsified statistics of famine. The famine of 1959-61 to has been acclaimed to have been the murder of 30 million people, and this statistic is used by many as another authentic claim. There has been heavy criticism on Mao for conducting such unrealistic politics during the Great Leap Forward. This is still an ongoing debate amongst our comrades in China. The party at this time modified agricultural policies and industrial policies also in response to some of the major setbacks caused by the Great Leap. There were also great internal conflicts and struggles within the party structure on a plethora of issues. The true cause of the famine lies at the hands of political, economic, management and response failures. Large portions of China were greatly affected by terrible weather for three seasons in a row, a fact that is ignored almost entirely. Instead, it's claimed that the Communist Party aimed to starve its people. This is false. Even critics of communism, such as Stanley Carnot, acknowledge the party's effort to aid regions ravaged by famine. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea also has numerous lies laid at its doorstep. They were exaggerated during the 50s and are still exaggerated today. Almost every analysis ignores the brutal 1945 Japanese occupation and the inhuman destruction laid on Korea during the Korean War. Today, slander against the People's Republic are both the usual imagined death rates and prison counts. Many mainstream claims against the DPRK come from single so-called eyewitnesses who are less than reliable. Yonomi Park is probably one of the most famous defectors and the most untrustworthy. She's been caught out numerous times backtracking on her statements about the DPRK. Her most iconic and most ludicrous lie is that the DPRK has only one train that makes one stop and takes an entire month to reach it. She also claims that there's no electricity and therefore citizens have to push the train in order to travel. Yes, that is something real that she has stated. Her lies go on to spiral and spiral into deeper pits of fantasy, yet her words and her interviews are given mainstream attention and her falsifications and outright lies are regurgitated by many of the anti-communist and uneducated masses. They preach that the People's Republic is a totalitarian monarchy. They base these claims off of, well, nothing. Rowan Valvany's article debunks this major myth with great detail. Be sure to check it out on Challenge magazine, which will be left in the description below. For the lies spread on Vietnam, we see the works of the Black Book in Rummel appear again. He gives an obtuse figure of deaths by democide in war at over 3.7 million. Only 6,000 deaths are attributed to the Vietnamese by the US, and the brutal carpet bombing campaigns and deaths as a result of Agent Orange have been totally ignored. On accident? No, on purpose. 
The many Vietnamese civilians that were murdered by the US and other collaborating nations are merely marked as casualties of war and therefore not applicable to this anti-communist death statistic. The statistics laid across Latin America have to be some of the most laziest and half-hearted efforts ever seen. Western academics and authors of the Black Book have attributed well over 150,000 deaths as a result of communism. But this number can only be obtained by both the standard lies and by adding the deaths of those who stood up against Pinochet, Somoza and other right-wing and fascist dictators in the continent. This is a common theme in anti-communism, muddying the waters in order to create a much larger and more threatening figure that has been the peak of all anti-communist propaganda tools. Going against the mainstream or questioning statistics gets you lambasted as a communist or a socialist in an attempt to smear you and divert you away from valid criticisms of sources and statistics. Our comrades in Greece have been condemned for the civil war which lasted till 1949. This is yet another lie. It was once again foreign intervention that would rearm the Nazis, their collaborators and re-establish the monarchy that was the cause for such conflict. The British were more than happy to collaborate with the Nazis. Churchill had ordered British commanders to kill communists and other partisans. British commander General Scobie noted, quote, We have to hold and dominate Athens, end quote. The British and Americans worked hard to place and create puppets in Greece. Most notably was Napoleon Zervis, former leader of the EDES, the National Republican Greek League. He stated, quote, No matter the operations of the army, the main thing is to kill the communists in the towns. End quote. The British and Americans continue their lies that the communists instigated the civil war, but the KKE, the Communist Party of Greece, took an initial unarmed self-defence approach to attacks carried out by US and British collaborators. It was only after these attacks that armed conflict was faced. Finally, for this episode, the countless lies against the strong and ever-resilient socialist state of Cuba. In every claim of criticism against Cuba, one thing is always ignored or either entirely distorted. The blockade. The hardship of the blockade is brutal and affects every aspect of day-to-day life in Cuba. Myself and Rob Miller talk extensively on this in a previous episode. One lie told about Cuba and their acts of international solidarity is that they sent an expeditionary force to Angolia to support the MPLA. The truth? The forces were sent to repel South African invasion and after a decade later, Cuba and MPLA actions brought the apartheid war machine to a standstill, which led to the direct liberation of Nambia as well. The prison populations are once again, like all socialist states, past and present, greatly fabricated. Through the early days of the revolution, these prisoners included are those of the Batista's fighting regime, US collaborators, counter-revolutionaries and those hell-bent on rekindling the flames of exploitation on the island. Thanks again comrades for listening to another episode of Spectre. Be sure to share this episode and the rest of Spectre's uploads with your workmates, friends, comrades and others. Be sure to leave us a rating on whatever platform you're listening in on. The truth is, this episode could be days long with the amount of anti-communist myths that could be busted. 
Some lies are more academic and complex, others are lazy slander, which would take next to no effort to dispute. It should be the duty of communists of all nations to denounce and debunk the myths that are laid on their own doorstep as well as every other common international myth. More and more of the youth from around the globe are turning to communism. In recognition of this, the bourgeoisie and the many class traitors are beginning to panic. When they can't lull the youth in with their so-called promises of capitalism, they result to telling lies upon lies upon lies. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies.